My name is Andrew Staples. Uh, I will be moderator. Uh, I'm a journalist and a long-time science fiction, speculative fiction fan. Uh, it is with very, very great pleasure that I will introduce to you Nedi Okorafor, winner of the World Fantasy Award for Who Fears Death, the book that we're primarily going to be talking about today, winner of the double, the Hugo and the Nebula for her novella Binti, Nedi Okorafor. Neddy, um, yes. we, are, we are primarily here to talk about Who Fears Death, a beautiful work of speculative fiction and soon to grace our TV screens in an HBO series. Yes, yes. Would you tell us a little bit about how the novel developed and uh, after that perhaps about what changes may be made for the TV series? Uh, yes. Um, so Who Fears Death was recently optioned um, by HBO at, with uh, George R. R. Martin from Game of Thrones as executive producer. And um, it was not something that happened overnight. It was, it was a process. It was actually probably over three years, not in the making, I think that's the wrong word for it, kind of a three-year three process. So finally the optioning happened, and I am going to be a consultant, so I'm highly involved in the project, so I'm getting to see how a TV show, how a, a novel is adapted into a TV show, and it's, it's a really cool process. You were telling me earlier that there was a lot of overmatter, shall we say, oh, yes. from, the, from, <laughs> from the novel, uh, yes. which, which might work its way into the TV series. <laughs> yes. Um, well, Who Fears Death was very much just kind of, um, there was so much to it. Who Fears Death was, I initially started, I originally started writing that novel after the passing of my father. So it was, it was not a novel where I sat down and was like, okay, I know exactly what this is going to be and thought about it for a long time and then finally sat down to write it. It was, it was sort of um, therapeutic. The very first uh, chapter that is in Who Fears Death, which moved, it moved to the ending, to the middle, many places, and eventually became the beginning again, was kind of based off of it, this a feeling in a situation that I had with my father at his, um, at his weight keeping. So that's really how it began. And when I wrote it, I did not know who the character was. I didn't know what the story was. I just started writing because I needed to get something out of me. And it took, I can't remember how long anymore. It took probably, the whole process for the novel took six years, but it took four years to write it. And initially when I wrote who Fears Death, it was, um, it was two books. It was a part one, a book one and a book two. And it was over, altogether it was over 700 pages, so it was a lot of story. And my agent looked at this thing that I had written and was like, you know, this is, this is amazing, I think it's going to win all these awards, but it's, you're writing African science fiction, and right now that's very rare. And you've basically written a duology, so it's a book mm -hmm. one and a book two, um, so his, his advice was to bring it into one book, and he also said, consolidate this book without changing anything, <laughs> without changing anything, and, um, and yeah, it will be great. And so I was like, what? How do you do that? And my agent also writes books on, um, on writing as well, and so his advice was to take the manuscript and look at every single word in it. 
every single word and combine the weak phrases into strong words. So very big would be huge. That's one example. And do that for the whole manuscript. It took me two years to do that. And I printed the whole thing out, all over 700 pages of this thing, and threw it on the floor and then looked at every single page, page by page, out of context, and looked at every single sentence. And the amount of words that I extracted were, were, it was amazing. And so eventually, after two years, I got the book down to from over 700 pages to 389 pages. I still remember that number. And, <laughs> I was and just so, going to have a look and see how many pages you got it down to, but yes. obviously this is very much on you. <laughs> yeah, oh, it was, it was really... It was the closest I've ever looked at a novel, you know, and it was very, it just, it was extremely meticulous, and I learned a lot of lessons in writing in that process. And so when you read Who Fears Death, it reads very smoothly and very quickly, and it's because of that process. So it was, it was a lot. I must admit, as a, as a journalist, I've, I've edited stuff down from, you know, a thousand words to 400, mm-hmm. but I, I would really not want to go and do a... <laughs> There were 700, particularly not of my own writing. Yes. <laughs> it was not easy. Um, so you're saying that the whole story was condensed. Is, are there any themes that were dropped that may reappear? Um, yeah, and that brings us back to uh, the TV show. So the TV mm-hmm. show, it's cool because I have, I still kept all of those. Um, I, I've kept every single edit, and I edited who fears death over 50 times. So I have over 50 versions of this book, and they each got shorter and shorter and shorter. And so now, now that, that it's been optioned and it's being made into a TV show, what I love about TV that, that isn't so much with film, because film, you condense the book. In TV, you expand it. And I love that, because Who Fears Death already has so much. And so one of the differences was that in the beginning of Who Fears Death, where she starts off as a young girl, there was a lot more of that. I had several chapters where she was where, with her mother, and it, she was very young, so I have a lot of material for that. Um, there were some various storylines that I actually took out completely in the, in the original. And, and when it was optioned, I remember speaking with one of the, one of the producers, and, and she was like, this is great. We've got like, all this material, so if we get beyond the book, we've got, we've got a lot to work with already. So, yeah. And I have to say here, for those... Uh, I hope that most of you have read this, but Who Fears Death is the name of the main character, whose name is Anya Sonwu. Yes. And, and which language is this in? Igbo. In Igbo. Yes. Would you explain to people a, a, a brief summary of the... Oh, boy. Of the book? <laughs> so now, now you've brought it down to sort of 389 pages. <laughs> can, I, can I ask you to summarise in, in about 30 words? <laughs> the history of student. The book or the situation? Or the... Um, the situation. Yeah. I mean, I, I, can, yeah. can we just actually, can we have a quick show of hands? Who, who, has, who has read Who Fears Death here? So we, we have a few people who are familiar, and we have some people who are, who are coming to meet you. So a, a, little, a little overview for those who, oh who have boy. just come to see. Of the book. Uh, first of all, it's like, Who Fears Death is so hard to summarize. Oh, my gosh. I'm still, so many years later, I, I still have trouble summarizing it. But um, I'll, I'll start with the, the inspirations for it. So first there was the passing of my father. So I wrote this initial, eventually, because I, I write inside out. So I, I don't write linearly, if that makes sense. <laughs> so I'll write the, so meaning like sometimes I'll write the, when I'm starting a, a novel, I'll, I might start with the middle and then write a scene from the end and then jump to the beginning and just keep doing that until I have the whole thing. So 
So you're a scene-based writer. I guess so. Yeah. yeah, I guess so. So the opening scene of Who Fears Death is it starts off with Onisomu at her father's wakekeeping, and this mystical incident happens when she's looking at her father. She's looking at her father, um, her father's face, and she realizes she's like it doesn't look like Papa's anymore, and she does something um, in her grief, and she she pulls this energy from all of the people around her, and in her grief, she does something amazing. That's the first scene. And that first scene was the first scene that I wrote right after the, the night of my father's wakekeeping. I wrote about this um, because that day at his wakekeeping, I found myself alone with my father's body, and it was just, I just had this very strange moment of emotion where I felt like all of this this energy was building within me, and that energy that was building within me was destructive, and it could destroy everything in that room. I could feel it, and it was coming up from the ground. I remember that, and it, eventually my mother and my sister came in there and took me out of there. So that night, I wrote that initial scene, which is the first scene in Who Fears Death. In Who Fears Death, in the world of Who Fears Death, it is post-apocalyptic. It's after something has happened to the earth where everything is desert. It takes place in a part of Africa. It's not specified in the beginning. And that's where the focus is. And so at this time, there is um, the peoples in this area. There are um, the Nuru and the Okeke. And the Nuru people are enacting genocide on the Okeke people. And our main character, Oni Somu, is a product of this. In this world, however, when, when when a child is born through this kind of through this violence, that child looks completely different. That child doesn't look like the father, doesn't look like the mother. The child looks almost not alien, that's the wrong word, but foreign, foreign in some way. And so that's who our main character is, and that's where the story begins. Onye has other abilities as well though. This is where perhaps sort of more spirituality mm. and mysticism comes into the comes into the story. She's uh, she's Eshu. Um, a shape changer and discovers this ability almost accidentally mm. yes. before, she, before she learns to use it. There's a lot of the theme in here is, is about transformation. Mm -hmm. as, as in a number of your, your other books as well, the, the idea of death, of rebirth, of, of transformation, almost like, um, almost like a, an initiation. Mm -hmm. is, is this something that, that is very personal to you? Very much so. Very much so. The, the idea of transformation and change is and, and how you deal with it and, and things happening to you that you cannot control and that, that you have no say in and how you have to live on and continue and do something with those things is definitely a theme that runs through probably almost everything that I've written. And I understand that Came, that comes from probably what led me to become a writer in the first place because I, I've dealt with some things on a, on a personal level that um, led me to, I guess, a symbolic deaths, you know, a symbolic death and a rebirth. And I'm very familiar with that. And, and I'm familiar with the dealing with it and learning from it and, 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 and taking from it and becoming because of it. Mm. I mean, in, in, in Who Fears Death, I think, I think, uh, I think Anya Songwu dies mm. several times yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, and comes back. E each one, you know, some of them 
a spiritual death, uh, some of them are a physical death. Mm-hmm. And in um, the Book of the Phoenix <laughs> as well, Phoenix, yeah. Phoenix goes through a very, very similar experience. I think she does say at one stage, I, I died. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. E- even, even, at, even at the very end, I want to try and avoid too many spoilers yeah, since there's a few right. people who've, who've written in here. But, but, um, but the end is not necessarily the end, is it? Mm-hmm. Can, is, is, that, is, is that subtle enough? It's a enough? little spoilery. <laughs> yeah, I think it might be. It's very difficult to talk about the end of Who Fears Death without, yeah. It's almost, there, there are alternative endings in a way, aren't mm-hmm. there? Mm-hmm. One of the things from this is um, the idea of, of, of African science fiction. Now, you're, you're born of Nigerian parents mm-hmm. in the United States, and you've, you've grown up in the US. Talk to me a, a little bit about what, what got you into science fiction, about what might be different about African science fiction. Yeah. I didn't grow up reading a lot of science fiction. I, I, um, I, I was always attracted to stories. You know, I would go, in, go to the library especially, and, and I just had a tendency to not pay attention to categories. I would just go in there and pick up whatever interested me. And if that were in the mystery section, I would take that. If it were in the fiction section, I would take that. If it were in the adult section, I would take that, um, which is how I ended up reading Stephen King's It when I was 12. <laughs> no <laughs> business doing that. I think I, I, but think I, I loved read it, it at a similar age. And I have no issue with clowns. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, I, have, I have many issues with clowns. But, um, but yeah, so I wouldn't pay attention to to categories, but one thing that, and this is only in looking back, uh, whenever I would read a science fiction narrative, I, my interest would wane very quickly. And so, so it got to the point where if I saw like a spaceship on the cover, I would just kind of move on. And the reason why was because in the science fiction that I was exposed to, um, I didn't see reflections of myself at all in those worlds. Or, or even the, the potential of myself existing in those worlds. Like, I was just, I just didn't exist. And, and so, therefore, I didn't really want to read it. It's, it's not that I had to see an exact portrayal of myself in, in every science fiction book, but I would have liked one, yeah. <laughs> you know, or, or the possibility. That's really important. I think that's important to everybody. And because of that, I didn't read much of it. I didn't, you know, so, so the way that I ended up writing it was that it was later because my first, my first few books and my first stories, when I first started writing, they were mainly, I was interested in um, a- African spiritualities, especially Igbo. And there's a reason for that. It has to do with my, my upbringing and, and things that were forbidden and things that were not talked about. That made me want to learn a lot more about it. So, so, and that always interested me. Just naturally. So, and also I, I had a, when I looked, when I view the world, my point of view is the world is a magical place. So that naturally led me to eventually jumping the rails and just writing flat out fantasy. Because my first, my first stories had, were more, I guess, magical realists. So just things, you know, if, if someone else were to read it, they think, okay, that's kind of weird. You know, <laughs> that's, that's very strange. But to me, it was just realism. But eventually, yeah, eventually I, I jumped the rails and, and um, started writing flat-out fantasy or fantastical uh, stories. Now, science fiction came later for me. It came after, because um, I was born in the United States, but from a young age, my parents were taking me 
my siblings and I back to Nigeria to get to know relatives and get to know our culture and who we are, all of that. So that was very important. Um, those were the most uh, colorful times of my, of my upbringing. And there's a reason why the very first short story that I wrote took place in Nigeria, just naturally, because that's where the energy always was. It wasn't something I sat down and thought about that I was going to do. It was just a ne- very organic thing. There, but, is a, there is a very, very... There's a vibrant yes, atmosphere yes. In, in, in Africa. Yes. And, and things were always happening. <laughs> like, oh, it's yeah, a great it's story right it's there. Busy. i got to write that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, but as I grew older, so as a, when I was younger, whenever we would go, it would just be like paradise. You know, like food would be delicious. And then you see your cousins and you just run wild with your cousins. And, and it was just paradise. And then, but as I got older, I started understanding things more and started understanding politics more and then being more observant as well um, of not just the world of children, but also the world of adults. And at some point, I, I developed that sneaky thing that I do where I like to just listen and eavesdrop, you know? And the, so cl- hear, the classic writer. Yes, thing. exactly. Yeah. We were always listening. <laughs> Always listening and writing things down. <laughs> so as I, as I grew older, especially once I hit my teens and then my 20s in particular, I started noticing um, technology. I started noticing technology in Nigeria being used in a way that, it was, that was different from in the United States. And it was interesting to me. It was very interesting to me. And, um, and I would think, okay, I'm not seeing that in stories at all. You know, I'm not seeing that. I'm, not see- I'm seeing Africa portrayed as a place of the past, as a place that's primitive, that doesn't have a future, where technology doesn't exist, all that stuff. So, can, you, can you give us an example of what you mean about technology being used differently? Um, let's see. Um, portable tech. Portable tech. Um, in Nigeria, laptops became popular sooner there than in the United States. Because in the United States, you had the desktop computers and you needed the power to be on all the time. In Nigeria, the power often goes on and off, on and off, and on and off. And that can destroy a, la- a desktop very mm. easily. But a laptop is chargeable. So, you know, you, you're more likely to get a laptop than a desktop there earlier. So portable tech, portable tech was a thing in Nigeria well before it was in the West. And then cell phones as well. Yeah. I was going to say, I've seen the same thing in Kenya with, with, with cell phones. Yes. You know, it's very, very hard mm-hmm. to get a landline, mm-hmm. but everybody has a cell phone. Exactly. And, and if there is a generator, if you're in a village with, with not hooked up to the mains, if there is a generator, mm-hmm. there's a sign outside saying, we, we, charge, your, we charge your mobile yes. phone. Right, um, exactly. So many shillings. Yes, <laughs> and internet cafes as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, even even within within Who Fears Death, within Binti, within most of your works, technology has a, a mystical aspect yeah. to it as well. Yeah. Um, is that is that as a result of seeing things in Nigeria, or is this more of the more of the spirituality? Yeah, I think um, I think that's more just me because I, I like I'm, I'm very interested in the closeness of technology to us. You know, um, I'm interested in, in like, uh, technology that is, that is part of our bodies and organic technology, all of that. So I think that comes, that co- so, the, so the idea of, like, let's say your, your cell phone is on you all the time. I mean, it, it, can you imagine if it, it takes in 
aspects of yourself. I mean, it just like in terms of um, mystical aspects, like vibrations and and spirit. You know, does it absorb that too? While we're absorbing the the radiation from the cell phone, is the cell phone absorbing something from us? So these are things that I that I always that I just naturally think about when it comes to technology. So that kind of seeps into into my writing. Since you mentioned Stephen King, I could almost see that turning into a horror story. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> um, because of because of your experiences in Africa, I've, I've noticed that you, you've travelled around a good part of Africa. You are becoming something of an ambassador for for African culture. You've you've been drawn into the world of the Black Panther and uh, and Wakanda. Um, how, how has how has that come about? <laughs> Were you approached by Marvel? Yeah. To- yeah, they um, they came to me, and initially they had asked me to write other characters. Um, and th- yeah, so this was over over several months um, before we got to got to Black Panther. And you know, I was busy, and you know, I was like, eh, I don't really, I, I don't know what I could bring to that particular character. And and so th- there's a lot of back and forth. And then at some point, they were like, um, well, you know. What about this? What about uh, a three-issue storyline of Black Panther? And you know, I was like, hmm, okay, this could this could be interesting. First, it's only three issues, so it's self-contained, so it's not perpetual. So, because I like to start small whenever I work on anything, I like to start small before I really get drawn into it. So, so that was a draw. But also, I had some. I, I had been in a constant kind of conversation with with Black Panther and Wakanda. And it was a, so there were some issues that I had with it and there were things that I really liked about it. And so I'd been thinking about, just thinking about um, Black Panther and Wakanda for a while. And so after some thought, because it, it took me about two weeks before I decided that I wanted to do it and also talking to some of my comic book friends who, were, who, were, who love comics, um, I realized that there were things that I could bring to, to Wakanda and that, and also to T'Challa's character, and so yeah, that's what made me really decide to kind of jump in. I'm going to ask for another show of hands here. How many people so far have seen Black Panther? Oh yeah, of course, a lot more. <laughs> yeah, yeah, actually, you know, it's not that much more. You know, isn't it? we we got we we've got some people here who haven't seen it. If you haven't seen it. You need to. You need to. Um, and if you haven't read Who Fears Death. You, you need to read that as well. They, um, there's, there's, there's two stories that you, you wrote for, for Black Panther. Uh, one, one features T'Challa. Yes. Um, and I, I did notice that, that right, at the, right at the beginning, um, you, you have T'Challa just, just reclining uh, on the sofa, um, reading, uh, reading the memoirs. And I'm trying to look up the name because I, I want to get the name, the name right here. And it's... It's not in this. Well, it's not in this book. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's in, let, me, yeah. let me borrow this one. <laughs> I can tell you. What go on, go on. It's Wally, Wally, and I can't pronounce the surname. Shoyinka. Wally Shoyinka. Yeah. Um, yes. Who is uh, the um, an African poet, a Nigerian poet, who won the Nobel Prize for Literature yes. in in eighty seven. So T'Challa yes. is is sitting down, <laughs> lying down, casually reading his yes. memoirs when. Yes. Uh, 
when something occurs that requires a superhero. (laughs) But the the second story that you wrote is is the one that has just, just dropped on on Comixology. 28th, I think it was, yeah. Yeah, a couple of days ago, um, which features an original character. Yes, yes. Do you want to talk a little bit about about the the interim Black Panther? (laughs) Yes, um... So uh, before I wrote the the Black Panther the three issue Black Panther storyline, I had written a short for it. Like I said, I like to start short. So um, I had written a short, and it was an anthology called um, uh, Venom vs. War Stories. And in this anthology, you had major characters, major Marvel characters who were venomized. So Venom is a alien symbiotic organism, and you originally see you see um, the creature attached to a Spider-Man suit. And so there's a whole, whole storyline with that. So this one featured several... Um, and when, you, when Venom attaches to you, you become very grotesque and, and unpredictable, to say the least. If, and If, if anybody's if anybody seen the older <laughs> Spider-Man movies um, before they reboot, before the reboot... Um, <laughs> Then, then Venom is the is is the black suit in Spider-Man yes. Three in the in the Sam Raimi versions. Who looks we, we, we're talking movies here rather than comics. Yeah, uh, oh yeah, my, right. My it's hard to. Is my my son's favorite hero stroke villain is. is oh, I was uh, terrified. Yeah, my, that was part of wife, why I wrote it. My wife it. hates it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's, it's a ter- when uh, Spider-Man is venomized, he looks terrifying. And so when they, when they asked me to write the short for it, um, that was part of why I said yes, because I'm terrified of Venom. And so if it scares me, I typically move towards it. I think I should write it. Um, and so this anthology featured several um, major Marvel characters who were Venomized. I believe one of them was Rocket um, from Guardians of the Galaxy and several others I can't remember right now. But for me, they, they initially wanted me to Venomize Black Panther. Right, and so I was like, "Yeah, I, I like that idea, but what about this one?" So that was how I came up with. Um, there was a in this in this short. It's about eight pages long. There's a girl in Nigeria, in Lagos, Nigeria, who happens to be in the wrong place at the wrong time when a canister that has venom, the symbiotic organism in it, um, rolls up to her. She's in a she's in a wheelchair as well. Um, she's, uh, she's quadriplegic, so she can't, um, she can't walk. So she's outside trying to catch a grasshopper. I love grasshoppers. And this canister rolls up beside her wheelchair, and it, it breaks, and venom comes out and immediately attacks her and tries to take over her body. And because she's extremely strong-willed, she takes control of venom and ends up... So in this one, okay... Some of you are not going to like hearing this, but fine, I'm going to say <laughs> So in this story, um, T'Challa is killed. It's in another universe, okay? <laughs> it's another universe. So he's killed by the villain Rhino, and so Ngozi has to save... Um, Ngozi, who loves um, the Dora Milaje and loves T'Challa and, all, and Wakanda, takes it upon herself to, to deal with, with Rhino, and then she becomes this superhero. Um, so, so I did that as a short. In, in eight pages, I killed T'Challa, which is a terrible thing. <laughs> I still can't believe I got away with it, though. I mean, like, uh, nothing happened. Wow, okay, cool. So, um, so yeah, I, I, that, was a, that was my first thing that I wrote for Marvel. And so when they came to me with this storyline idea for the three issues 
Um, I think it might have been my editor who was like, yeah, why don't you do one more Ngozi story? And so, so yeah, I did. And that's the one that just came out on the 28th where now, so Ngozi becomes Ngozi and Venom working together because she's able to control Venom. Um, they become the interim Black Panther for Wakanda. That's very complicated, but it makes sense. And so... so you, you, you carefully avoid explaining too much about that, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I feel like I need to explain it so much. But yeah, that's what the, 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 the issue that just came out on the 28th is but, about. But what I really liked about, about the new story, the, the one featuring Ngozi, is, mm-hmm. is the, 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 the plot centers around a plot... To, to steal food. Oh yes, um, and and not just not just any food. Um, this is this is great African food, and I think this is this is something um, as something of an ambassador for for African culture. You you have a very strong views. Yes. On food. Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> I, I've asked I've asked Nettie to do a little reading, and I'm not sure now whether whether I should ask her to explain a bit about African food before the reading, or shall we just drop the reading on first? And I can then explain a little. Bit. Go on. I can explain <laughs> a little. Um, so food always features prominently in my work, and um, it's I think a lot of it has to do with uh, growing up Nigerian American and. Um, Food is so important, and one of the things that you that you learn, that you hear, especially from from the men, is that a, a good woman knows how to cook. If a woman does not know how to cook, something is wrong with her. It's very annoying. We've, we've tried. We've tried actually to teach our kids. Um, sorry, I'm going to I'm going to mix European African family. Uh, we've tried to teach our kids that, that that men know how to cook as well. Good. You know, it's about time. Um, if, if, only, if, only to, if only to really surprise the women. <laughs> yes, and that, I think that's good. It's a good surprise. But, um, yeah, so, so there's that. And then also, um, being Nigerian-American, you know, you, I, I grew up loving Nigerian food, but the ingredients are always difficult to get when you're in the country. And so whenever we would visit Nigeria, my sisters and brother and I would always just go nuts over the food whenever we would go because it would be so good and there would be so much of it. And sometimes we'd eat so much that we'd get sick. But um, it's, it's something that... And it also, I've always seen food as sort of a, a manifestation of culture as well. And so, you know, and, and this has become very clear being Nigerian-American because one thing that I'm always aware of is what, as, as a Nigerian-American, what I, what's missing? You know, oh, you don't speak the language. Okay, something's wrong with you. Okay, you need, to know how to, you need to know how to cook these dishes. If you don't know how to cook these dishes, something is missing. from. So, so food has always been, um, food is like language in a lot of ways because language also carries a large part of culture. But food also does. So that kind of shows up in my, in my stories. Having, having talked a bit about the food, and, mm-hmm. and perhaps a number of people don't realize just how important food is in, in African culture, um, would, you, would you care to read this, this sure. passage? Um, shall I explain? Uh, this, this is not from Who Fears Death. Yeah, this, is, this is from the this prequel. Is from the, the prequel, <laughs> the book of the Phoenix, yes. uh, where, where Phoenix is... is being pursued and takes shelter with an Ethiopian couple. Yeah, I'm not even going to try to explain the, the <laughs> premise because <laughs> no, it's like so much. Um, 
yeah, hopefully you can catch on. So this is just, this is just two pages of, um, of the Book of Phoenix. His wife brought the food out minutes later. By then, my entire back was aching so badly that I began to wonder if my light was burning me from within. But if that were the case, then my whole body should have been in pain, not just the area around my shoulder blades. Every move I made brought a deep, itchy pain that made me want to tear, my, tear at my skin. My husband and I were about to eat dinner. This is, our speci- this is my special recipe, Makeda said, ceremoniously placing the large, round metal platter on the table. I only make this for family. The platter was covered with injara, a spongy, delicious flatbread. At Tower 7, only once in a while did they serve my wat with the traditional injara. On the, layer of, on the layer of bread in the center of the platter were the drumsticks and boiled eggs stewed in the spicy red sauce. On the injara layer closer to me, to my left, was a small mound of boiled, egg, of boiled cabbage and carrots, and on the right was a mound of yellow curried lentils. The same was on the other side of the platter. Birihun sat across from me. You should have the pleasure of company with your meal, he said. I felt my chest swell with emotion. Good company, a small but wonderful thing. That was exactly what I craved. Not a good meal, not a good, next to a good meal. It seemed so long that I'd had good company. Makeda also set a a plate with four, four rolled up sections of injara on the table and then sat down in the chair beside me. I'm not hungry for food, but I am for your story, she said, looking at me with her eyes of wonder. Will you tell us? Let her eat some first, my, wa- my wife, Berihun said with a chuckle. Makeda nodded but glanced toward the door. I understood her unspoken words perfectly. I didn't have much time. The big eye were out there. They were looking for me. How long would it be before they came running down the street, checking every building? I picked up... I picked up one of the soft rolls of flatbread, unrolled it a bit, and tore off a piece. I grasped some chicken and stew with it and popped the the combination into my mouth. This is the most wonderful thing about Injara flatbread. It is simultaneously food, eating utensil, and plate. My eyes grew wide as my brand new taste buds sang, Oh, delicious! Makeda beamed. Berihun was busy shoveling food into his mouth, too. I tore off more injara. The balance of meat, egg, pepper, tomato was harmony. Tower 7 Dorawat had never tasted like this. The injara was deliciously sour and light as a cloud. The sauce was colorful, tantalizing heat. The chicken savory, I ate and I ate. She brought out more of everything and I ate that too. Neither of them commented about the fact that I was eating like two large men and I was glad. All that I had been through in the last hour was smoothed away by this perfect sustenance. My entire being relaxed. My mind was calm and alive as the flavors in my mouth touched my other senses. My name is Phoenix, I said. We'd been eating in silence for ten minutes. Barry Hewn and Makeda both looked at me with anticipation. My DNA was probably brought straight from Africa. That makes the most sense to me now. I was mixed and grown in Tower 7 two years ago, though I look and feel about 40 and have the knowledge of a, have the knowledge of a sentent, eh. <laughs> <laughs> sententarian. 
I am what they call an ABO, an accelerated biological organism. I sighed. Amongst other things, I think I was supposed to be one of this country's greatest weapons. I told them everything. Has anybody here eaten injera? So good. There's a few people there. For those that haven't, you can you can find this dish uh, at Gosha on Palm Jumeirah if you're one of the Palm Jumeirah sort, or if you're or if you're real. The, the best place to get it here is in Habasha, in Abahail, behind the post office. There's a fantastic little Ethiopian restaurant there, so you can, you can experience some Ethiopian cuisine. Girl, what? <laughs> so good. Um, I think we, we, were, we were talking earlier, good in, injera is absolutely fantastic, and, and bad injera is like eating a foam <laughs> mattress. <laughs> um, we're, coming, we're coming really towards the towards the end of our, of our talk here. Um, one of the things that, that, that I've been wanting to ask you is, is you know, your, your work is largely classified as, as science fiction. Mm-hmm. Is this something that you classify it as? Or are you telling stories? Is this, a, is this a publisher's category? Or do you consciously think, I'm going to write African science fiction? Yeah, um... I think that if I had to categorize uh, my works, I would categorize them as Nettie-esque. Because <laughs> they don't fit any category. I uh-uh. mean, like, they're, they're all over the place categorically. I mean, they're, I think um, also, also there, I have some issues with the defining of science fiction because a lot of times science fiction is defined through a specific worldview. And what I mean by that is that certain, not all cultures um, view the world in one way. So, like, um, if you have a culture that views the world as a place where the mystical and the mundane coexist, and that's normal, and that's acceptable, um, how would that culture view fantasy, you know? Um, and and, and if, that, if, if someone from that culture writes science fiction and it has what someone from a different culture would consider fantastical elements, is that science fiction? You know, so it's like these questions, like the, the very defining of, basically science fiction is defined by the West. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. It is defined by the West and is defined by uh, a Western point of view. And so I think that, yes. Emphasis. Yes. Yeah. And, and so, so when it is defined that way, that's why, um, that's why my work is hard to categorize because the worldview that I come from, despite the fact that I was born and raised in the United States, I'm also Nigerian-American, and there are certain worldviews that I've absorbed through the Nigerian side of what I am, and that comes through in my work. And so, um, so it, it may seem like I'm what, what a lot of reviewers call blending categories, but I'm not blending anything. It, it, it means that the normal state of things is separate. It's, it's implying that the normal state of things is separate. For me, this is what is. This is normal. So um, categories are just... Uh, they're, uh, they're, um, we like to label difficulty. things in the West and put them into a little container yeah, that, and say, and everything this that doesn't is fit, this. But everything yeah. that doesn't fit 
falls away, is ignored. Yeah. You know, so if it's science fiction, then all of the fantastical elements get ignored. And therefore, you're not seeing the full story. 